When Master Horseman Van Hargis finally got to meet Tom Dorrance, the experience was uniquely Tom. I've invited you to my place because we're having Tom Dorrance come out. I want you to meet him. I want you to watch what he does. I think he'll really help your horsemanship. I watched him for three days. I bought his book, of course, and I handed the book over to him. And I said, Mr. Dorrance, if you don't mind, could I get you to just write something in that book for me? Something that you think a, a young trainer would really like to hear and something you think would stick with him for the rest of his career. Oh, man, that's a tough assignment, he said. I, <laughs> but I think of something. Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. You've found the safe place to be horse crazy. I'm your co-host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Horse trainer clinician Van Hargis grew up in East Texas. One of our friends and listeners, former Californian, now Texan, Julie Suarez, suggested we talk to Van. She had seen a video, done a little research, and really liked his style. Talking to different trainers can be helpful. Many of them are saying the same thing. It's simply presented in a little different way. If a key principle or concept keeps coming up, take note, it's probably important. Van Hargis has a really easygoing speaking style. He's clear, concise, and paints a good picture. I hope it's not too awfully rude to use a quote from one trainer to describe another trainer, but one of my favorite Clinton Anderson quotes is, if you want to be effective, you must first be understood. Well, Van Hargis is effective. He even gives you a shout out in this interview, Renee. Well, then let's get started. Let's get to it. We're speaking with Van Hargis this morning from South Texas. Good morning, Van. How you doing? Hey, John, I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show, by the way. Well, one of our friends in Bakersfield, Julie Suarez, she lives in East Texas now. She moved from California, and she said you'd be a great guest to come on the show. You have a, a great style of horsemanship. I remember you from doing uh, Road to the Horse, I think, in 2005 and 2006. So I thought we'd have you on. We'll talk a little bit about your horsemanship and uh, your life with horses. Awesome. Well, first of all, I had to shout out to Miss Julie. Thank you so much. Uh, and if she's in East Texas, John, that's my old stomping grounds. I was born and raised in East Texas. Well, she would like to have some more events coming to East Texas. She says South Texas and West Texas have all the cutting, raining, and stock horse events, but there's not much going on for her in East Texas. How can you improve on that? Well, you know, there's a wonderful facility up there. Actually, it's my old hometown, Sulphur Springs, Texas. Uh -huh. uh, they have a wonderful horse facility. It's both the fully enclosed indoor facility, and then they've also got just a covered facility outside as well. But there's there's quite a few activities going there on a regular basis. I don't know where Julie's exactly located in East Texas, but Sulphur Springs is right up there on Interstate 30, exactly the halfway point between Dallas and Texarkana. So uh -huh. anybody in that area that's even remotely thinking about hosting an event, that's just an ideal facility for that. And I really encourage her to seek that out. Well, sounds good. I'll pass that along. I'm sure she's going to listen to this as well. You bet. Now, tell us a little bit about how you got started in horsemanship and how your journey has kind of developed over the years. It, it kind of started like a lot of folks, I think, in our industry. Uh, my stepfather uh, was a, a, a part-time horse trainer. Uh, I say part-time because he was a full-time teacher for the Dallas Independent School District. And as I said, I was 
kind of born and raised in East Texas, we live just an hour or so just east of Dallas, a little bitty community called Campbell, Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we were there, of course, we had his horses that he had, and then we always had some outside horses, some client horses there all the time. And when you're an only child (laughs) and there's lots of horses and animals around, you tend to find yourself kind of involving yourself with those animals quite a bit. And that was kind of my start. I was always outside playing with the horses and, and watching my stepfather. And, and I'm going to say with all due respect, um, he, he, in my opinion, he just wasn't, you know, especially now looking back, he just wasn't that great of a horseman. Uh-huh. But the, but the good thing was, is that his enthusiasm carried us around to a lot of different locations. And while being exposed to those locations, I was also exposed to a lot of other trainers and just like a curious kid would do, I just tend to sit on the fence and watch the other trainers and try to mimic what they were doing. And thank God I was blessed with the common sense to realize what was working and what wasn't working. So I'd, I'd watch the guys that were really doing well, and I'd kind of copy those guys. I'd watch my stepfather and think, okay, this is what not to do. I'd watch the other guys and say, okay, this is something that's pretty good to do. And I kind of just started over time just kind of developing my own little style. Well, in the meantime... Uh, my my parents were also very involved with 4-H, so it kind of helped me kind of get started into competition and and having goals to shoot for. Other than just riding the horses, I was shooting for a particular standard. You know, I wanted to be competitive uh, with the other with the other kids participating. So I began to realize what I needed to do in order to be able to compete with those guys, which right. in turn kind of elevated my horsemanship skills to a certain degree. And it's, of course, it certainly developed a, a keen amount of work ethic. Well, of course, life happens. I, I had to kind of take a little bit of break. By the time I was in college, I, I took off and went and played college football instead of uh, playing with the horses during that time. Mm-hmm. But shortly afterwards, I kind of got myself right back into the horse business again. And uh, before you know it, I had my own facility kicked off. And one thing led to another. And a few years later, all sorts of opportunities started came, coming about. And and uh, and as you said, in 2005 and 2006, I was invited to to come to Tootie Bland's uh, Road to the Horse competition and really had a great time there. It was it was a fun time. It was fun to visit with everybody and and of course, also fun to uh, to co- showcase our cult starting skills. Let me let me ask you a little bit about that because what do you think about Road to the Horse as a as a benefit to to horsemanship? It's a very I mean trying to to start a cult in three hours is a tough deal, and I don't think any of us would choose to do that. And I, I have a little bit mixed emotions. I mean, it's fun to watch. I've watched it. I've got several of the DVDs, but on the other hand. I've tried starting my own cult, and three hours just doesn't seem to give them a fair opportunity. Well, first of all, we, we need to precede that with a giant disclaimer above the stadium and above the above the arena that says, don't try this at home. <laughs> right. Expert driver on a closed course kind of thing like they do in car commercials. Huh? Absolutely. <laughs> because what we have to realize is, is that, yes, that is a very tough challenge for the horses. But it's also a very tough challenge for the individual's discipline. And what I mean by that is, is that we have to realize that, yes, it's a competition, but yes, we're also working with another being. And we can only go as fast as that horse is capable and willing to go. Case in point, and I'll just use my own experience. My first year at Road to the Horse, I had a really tough little filly, but at least she was willing. And there was a point in time in that session that we were, that I was working with her 
to where you could just see her just melt and she just came to me. And from then on, we made huge progress. Right. The second year I had a, a lot tougher horse, believe it or not, that quite frankly, just wasn't quite ready to be there. I mean, he was a horse that had one really bad habit. He was really bad about kicking mm-hmm. and it was, it was dangerous enough to the point to where I couldn't really get him safely saddled without jeopardizing my own safety. So I had to make a really big decision there. And the decision was, well, do I, do I get tougher with the horse or just try to be a really good example to the audience? Right. Because I mean, it's almost like the luck of the draw type thing. It was one of those horses. I'm not going to win with this guy. There's no way we're going to get him to make that big of a transition in such a short period of time. So I just kind of accepted the fact that, Hey, I just got a bad colt for the luck of the draw and do the best job I possibly could with him. But to answer your question directly, I don't really think that, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the road to the horse. There's a lot of other you know, uh, types of cult starting challenges now that kind of follow the same lead. Right. But I do think we do need to proceed that with, with that, that disclaimer. Uh, and I think each, each individual trainer needs to reinforce that with the audience. Cause most of the guys are given an opportunity to speak to the crowd during that time. And I know even today when I'm asked to do a cult starting demonstration or to do a problem solving thing at some of the horse expos we go to, I always tell everybody, you know, I'm doing this as a demonstration to you guys. We, we, you may see a, a shortcut speeded up version might do at home. However, mm-hmm. if I was at home, I might spend an entire day on just this. I might spend another entire day on just this and, right. and try to reinstate that in the people's minds that it's time is totally irrelevant to the horse. Uh, I, I think Tom Dorrance said it best when he says, take as much time as necessary. Right. And, and we really do have to practice that discipline within ourselves, not to be in a rush, not to be in a hurry, give the horses the time that it takes to soak in whatever message it is that we're trying to get them to soak in. I think that's a, a good point. Cause, and that's, that was my concern about road to the horse. And the biggest problem I see with my horsemanship is trying to take too many steps too quickly and there's a there's kind of that fine balance you have to keep moving forward but you have to kind of wait for the horse to come around too and watching the trainers out in that round pen you don't always get the opportunity to see what they're thinking or seeing what they're progressing part of it's that competition and part of it is that is that training process and you want to make sure that you know that they're not going to go home and try that on their own. Right. The thing is that we have to realize that great horsemanship starts with the ability to really fully, and there's the key word there, John, is we have to fully learn to read and very objectively study the horse. And mm-hmm. the, the greatest horseman that I know can just about tell you what a horse is thinking before the horse is thinking it. Now, you, you know, from your experience in working with horses, timing is everything. There's a, there's a quote that I just absolutely love. It's called where you release is what you teach. And because of that, we have to, and I'm going to use another quote that I wish that Tom Dorton shared with me many years ago, reward the thought. If you can put those two quotes together, that where you release is what you teach and then you need to reward the thought. So look how close and important your timing is. So in other words, you've got to be able to read that horse. When he even thinks about doing the correct thing, you've got to figure out a way to reward that by releasing whatever pressure. And, and right. I tell people all the time, there's, when you're working with horses, there's always at least two different types of pressure. There's what I call implied pressure. Sometimes that's just the, your mere presence. 
then mm-hmm. there's also applied pressure, that, that pressure that we intentionally direct toward the horse. But either way, we have to realize that horse could perceive either one of those as pressure. And if that's the case, we have to be so keenly aware of that and read what it is that we want from the horse, read what that is that we don't want from the horse, and be very quick to reward that in which we do want. That's where I, that's, that's the only thing I don't like about the road of the horse type things. And don't get me wrong, I love the event. I think it's phenomenal. Me but, too. But those type of competitions in general, most people, and I say that with all due respect to our listeners, but most people just don't know really how well those guys in that arena are truly reading that horse, all the different things that we're reading with the horse's ears, eyes, the shape of their muzzle, how they're traveling with their feet, that rhythmic feel on their feet, where their tail is flowing behind them, where their head is positioned, all of those things all tell a story. And you've got to very quickly take that story, interpret it, and, and still try to achieve a goal. And you guys are amazing because uh, uh, the sign of a true professional is making the job look so easy. And you guys do that because you're reading so many signs. You're reading all those those hundreds of little things that you can that you've learned over the years to pick up on a horse, and you're you're translating those, and then you're applying them back to your horsemanship. Sure. Was Tom Dorrance a, a big influence in your horsemanship? Not in the early years, but yes, sir, very much so years later. Uh, and I, I, I don't mind telling you how that started. The first time I saw Tom Dorrance, he was already 86 years old. One of my heroes called me one day, and I was, I was at my place there in Sulphur Springs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get a phone call. My wife comes out and says, hey, you want to come in and get this phone call? Well, I run in the house, and it was Jack Brainerd. Jack Brainerd had been one of my heroes since I was about, oh, nine years old, I say. Uh-huh. Well... Jack says, Van, uh, I just want to invite you to my place. At that time, he had a place in Aubrey, Texas called the Diamond B Ranch. And I uh, said, Van, I want you to invite, my, invite you to my place because we're having Tom Dorrance come out. As far as I know, this is his only trip to Texas. But he's coming out wow. to the ranch. He's going to do a big clinic here. I want you to meet him. I want you to watch what he does. I think he'll really help your horsemanship. Well, I mean, yes, sir. I'll, I mean, I told him I was coming. <laughs> I'd be there. Well, man, we booked over there as quick as we could get there when, when, when Tom was uh, at Jack's place. And I watched him for three days. Uh, I bought his book, of course, and I handed the book over to him. And I said, Mr. Dorrance, if you don't mind, could I get you to just write something in that book for me? Something that you think a, a young trainer would really like to hear and something you think would stick with him for the rest of his career. Oh, man, that's a tough assignment, he said. I, <laughs> but I think of something. Well, a little while later, I looked down in my book and he had written those three words that I shared with you a moment ago, reward the thought. And to be honest, John, I was like, what the heck does that mean? You know what I mean? I, I was like, what such a profound statement, three words, reward the thought. What does that mean? How, I mean, he didn't get a chance to explain it to me. So I'm kind of confused and, and quite frankly, I was frustrated. So I called him months later and I said, Mr. Dorrance, I was wondering, I'm going to be up in that, that area of the country. Could I come up and visit with you for a little while? I ended up spending about 10 days there and it was 10 inspirational days. The, uh, the, the, the knowledge that he shared with me was just phenomenal, but at the same time, it was also very frustrating. I'm, I'm the type of person that I ask a question and I want to, I want a good answer. Right. And he reminded me so much of my grandfather. he never gave me a direct answer. I would ask him something. He'd say, well, Van, that depends. And he, I, I can't think of a single question that I ever asked him 
that he would give me a direct answer. It was always, it depends. <laughs> but I also realized later why he meant that is because every situation with a horse is different. Horses live right now in the moment. So you have to make that decision as to what to do right now in the moment. So as a result of that, that's keenly influenced the way that I teach people today when I'm working with a clinic or a private lesson, or even when I'm talking to a large group at a, at a horse expo, I don't really concern myself with teaching somebody how to do something. I'm more concerned with teaching somebody why we're doing something. Hmm. If we understand the why, we will figure out the how. Right. You see, but if we don't understand the why, then the how means nothing. And so when I hear Tom's words say, it depends, what I really heard him saying was, well, why do we need to know that answer? Why do we need to do this? Why do we, what are we shooting for? And then uh -huh. years later, it really helped me to, to come up with what I call my four horsemanship questions. These are my four primary horsemanship questions. Oh, and, great. And, and sometimes it's pretty hard to think about, but at the same time, the first one's pretty difficult. Number one, what do you want? Sounds easy though, doesn't it, John? What do you it want? It does, yeah. yeah. But when you start analyzing that, well, what do you want? It sometimes gets pretty difficult for us to answer. And sometimes it's too generic and sometimes it's too specific. So we have to always be willing and humble enough to adjust that it whatever it is that we that we want or that we even think we want. Just to to follow up on that, a lot of times we'll think what we want and then on the way to getting that want, we'll change our mind. And then that kind of confuses the horse a little bit too. So if if we know what we want, we have to kind of stay on that track too. Sure. Or we might say what we want and then we find out in that process after we get started, oops, I wanted too much. The horse isn't ready. Or yeah. oops, I wanted yeah. too much. I'm not ready. I don't know how to ask that, which comes up with a second question. The second question is after we determine what it is that we want or what we think we want, the second question is, is it fair? Is it fair to the horse? In other words, is it fair mm -hmm. for me to ask a colt in the first 30 days of his training to do a flying lead change? Oops, right. I don't know. That might not be a fair question. The other thing I need to ask myself, is it fair to myself? Do I even know how to ask for a flying lead change? So we, <laughs> we, we have to really ask ourselves, is what I want fair? Is it within the cap horse's capabilities and is, and is it within, within my capabilities? And then once we come up with that determination, so we've got question one and question two, question three would be, can I communicate that in a way that the horse can understand? It makes no difference if I know what I want. It makes no difference if, if what I want is fair. If I don't know how to communicate it in a way that the horse can understand it, I mean, I might be able to communicate it to you, but if I can't put it in equinese, we're, uh -huh. we're stuck, right? So I've got to be able to communicate right. that in a way that the horse can understand it. And then lastly is I want to be able to measure it. So I ask myself, well, hey, how'd that work out? Did the horse do what I want or is he you know, on track of what I want or did he do it perfect? And what I do to keep my positive attitude a lot of times, John, is whenever I ask a horse to do something and we go through those first three questions in that process and we achieve it, that solution is always in my mind, perfect. I go, oh, that was perfect. Even if it was right. just an attempt, I just go, oh, that was perfect uh -huh. for now. <laughs> you see, and now, now, right. that, now that we know right. that we can do it, I raise the bar and uh -huh. think, okay, let's, let's try it again. Let's see if I can communicate it better. Let's see if the horse can receive it better. Let's see if the horse can perform it better. And then as soon as we do, Ooh, that was perfect. And we, we raise the bar and we do it again. I want to go back to number three, because I think that 
where a lot of people tend to struggle the communicate in a way the horse can understand is there a way to develop that more fully in your horsemanship absolutely and it's just and there's no shortcuts you can go to every clinic in the world you can read every book there is in the world you can watch all the dvds in the world but bottom line is john you've got to put in your time you've got to you've got to practice enough with a horse that you develop your communication skills. And I tell people all the time, don't worry about being another Van Hargis. Don't worry about being another Clinton Anderson. Don't worry about being another John Lyons or Josh Lyons. Worry about developing your communication and your communication style. Thank God the horses are smart enough that if you're consistent and you're persistent enough, the horse will figure out what you want. So you just need to practice enough to kind of develop your style. And that I've always kind of struggled with that part too because for most of the my audience and and for me it is that we have an opportunity to look at one or two horses in our lifetimes you know maybe half a dozen if we're really you know if we started young and we kind of go through things and as a trainer you see uh you know 50 horses a year probably or even more than that and so you get a wide variety to choose from just because of that interaction where your knowledge base is really very broad. For the average recreational horse owner, which most people are today, you know, how do they develop that with just one horse? Do they do they turn their horse over to somebody else and say, hey, let me let me train your horse and I'll let you kind of work on my horse so, so that we can see the different personalities? Or, or how do people develop that? I think it just kind of depends on what their goal is. You know, for, mm-hmm. for example, if you're just going to be a one horse owner and you're going to have that horse for a considerable amount of time, then do you really need to be able to read so many different types of horses? Just really learn to study and and learn your horse. I think that's okay. challenging enough for a lot of folks, but, but here's the problem is, is that, and do you, you know, you've heard the dog guy, the dog whisperer, uh, Caesar Milan. Right. Yes. I love what he said one time. He said, first thing we need to realize is that our dogs are animals. Good. So that's what we need to realize as horsemen. The first thing we need to realize about horses is that they're animals. The mm-hmm. second thing we need to learn about our horses is that they're horses. The third thing we need to realize about our horses is maybe their breed. And then maybe right. their gender. But lastly, it's Flicka or whatever the horse's name is. Right. Way too many times I see people regard their horse as scooter first And well, you know, John, how Scooter is, he's just, oh, he's the most different horse I've ever seen in my life. And I want to Uh scratch my head and go, how many horses have you seen? Because because if Scooter's the only horse you've seen, no, you have no idea. I know what horses are, but you have no idea what horses are. So we need to really study more. But if we don't have that opportunity, then study the horse we have. But studying for what he is, and he's not Scooter, he's a horse. And then we need to really maybe go look at our books and study different things too to find out what is what is what do horses do? How do horses think? And one of the biggest things I tell people about horses, there's a few things that really make them very easy to train if we truly understand it. First is that they are a prey animal. If we know that they're a prey animal, we know how their brain thinks. Because their brain thinks in terms that they are always surviving. They're always in survival mode. Even our domestic horses, that instinct is so deeply ingrained in them that they want to survive. And we're, right. when they want to survive right now in the moment, 
They're not worried about you feeding them late yesterday. They're not going to buck you off today because you fed them late yesterday. Um, they're not truly worried about feeding time later on this evening. They're very much concerned about what's happening with their, with them in their life right now. The mm-hmm. other thing we need to know about them is that they're great big animals with a little bitty fuel tank. In other words, they're great big animals with a little bitty stomach, which means they have a very fast metabolism, which also means they have a low energy threshold, which means everything that they do, they want to do it as efficiently as possible. That's a great thing for us to know because surely you've also heard the quote made, it was a Tom Dorrance quote, but made famous by Ray Hunt, make the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult. Right. That's a great thing to learn if we, if we're really looking at this horse as a horse and not as Scooter or some other horse's name. Right. right. Because if we know that making them, making the right job for them easy, then they're going to seek out that efficiency. They're going to seek out, oh, I can do a flying lead change because that's easier easier than doing, say, a counter canner. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that flying lead change is easy. I think I'm going to take that option to do the flying lead change as soon as John gives me that opportunity to do so. Right. You see, so we have to kind of, as, as riders and as humans, we have to realize that God blessed this horse with a great big body, great big lungs, and, and everything else. But he blessed us with a great big brain. So all we really have to do as as horsemen is just really understand horses for what they are and then use our brain to kind of think about what it is that we want and those other four questions that we we talked about before. That sounds good. It's just a a process, isn't it? It is. And I think a lot of of what you offer uh, and shows like this, the the horsemanship shows, you learn a little bit at a time. And you've you've got your own podcast. We're actually fellow podcasters. Yeah. Uh, I've been listening to Ride Every Stride, and I think it's a great show. It not only incorporates horsemanship, but it also personal growth as well. And if there's one thing we know about horses is that if if you're around horses long enough, it leaks over into your regular life. I mean, it re- you learn to accept the horse for who he is. You start learning to accept people for what they are. There's a lot of parallels between living your life and good horsemanship. Oh, absolutely, John. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm, I've, I've got, been working on a book for quite some time. It'll be releasing soon, but it's, it's called The Horse is My Teacher. And, you know, I had so many people in my lifetime share their successes and share their stories, share their personal life tips for me. And, but it was with the horses and the experience with the horses that really helped sell those messages home to me. It was almost like I'd, I'd had that moment in my mind of, Oh, that's what my mom meant. Or, yeah. Ooh, that was a great lesson that my math teacher taught me in school. And, mm-hmm. and yet it was those horses and that experience with them that kind of helped resonate that with me. Another thing that, that about my podcast that, that I'd like to touch on is that I look at horsemanship as an opportunity to practice humanship because it, it really is creates that opportunity for us is that if, if we need to be good leaders, horses give us an opportunity to practice that leadership skill. And we also get an opportunity to see that immediate feedback. Does it, does it always work to be real aggressive? No. Does it always work to be really passive? No. So it gives us that opportunity to practice expanding ourselves. There's times in life we need to be assertive. There's other times in our life we might be a little bit more patient and, and, and more passive. So horses give us that opportunity to practice that. They give us that, that, that opportunity to practice, and they're much more forgiving than some people. So if, <laughs> if we try to practice those techniques on people, they might be a little less forgiving than 
than that horse is. Absolutely. Absolutely, John. And you've got uh, Laura McClellan as your as your co-host on that show, and she brings up quite a bit to the to the show too, because she's she has a different podcast about the productivity of women, and with the horse industry being eighty-five to ninety percent women now, I bet that's a really good perspective to have. Well, and one thing I really like about having Laura as my podcast host is that number one, I, I all the credit goes to her why I even did this thing. She had started the the Productive Woman podcast and and said, "Ben, you've got to try this. I think you'd really like it." And I told her I'd do it only if she if she helped me because I'm not a real high tech person, John. I <laughs> I get along with horses really well, <laughs> but the computers and all the other stuff, the technology stuff, kind of kind of worries me sometimes. So uh-huh. she kind of walked walked me through it. But the most remarkable thing about Laura is how we met. We we met because she had picked up an article that I'd written uh, with uh, Horse and Rider magazine several years ago, and uh, like you said, women make up eighty-five to ninety percent of the horse industry. Laura fit that perfect demographic. She was a, a person who had horses as a young child, went her whole adult life without them, until she finally decided, you know what? I've got the time, the money, and the resources. I'm going to go follow my girlhood dream. And mm-hmm. she started to do that, but then she realized, oh my gosh, there's more at stake now. I I don't know what to do with these great big animals. And besides that, I could get hurt. So like a lot of women, she began to get overwhelmed by the fear of pursuing her goal with horses. And so she sought me out and we worked with each other and it just a great friendship developed from it. And, and for that reason, I wanted her to be a part of the podcast too, so that she could give me that perspective. You know, what women right. are, what women are really thinking and what questions would they ask if, if they had the opportunity to, and, and quite frankly, we have to realize it's because women do make up the, the vast majority of our, our equine industry, we've got to consider what's on their minds. What are the things that they're thinking about and what are the things they're most concerned about? What are the things they want to do? So she brought to, she brought to the table, I think just a, a great little tool for us. To kind of sidebar that when you learned your horsemanship growing up through 4-H and then you started becoming a, a clinician and a teacher, how did you have to adjust for the way women interact with their horse versus the way a man interacts with the horse? Well, it's, it's funny you ask that. I get this question a lot. Well, Vanya, what do you do, Van? I bought this horse and I think this is a man's horse or my husband can't get along with this horse at all. So I think this is a woman's horse. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, I hear people say that. And I, I, I honestly, John, I discount that. I don't think horses are really that good at telling our gender. I think they are masters though, at telling, uh, the way that we handle ourselves. Women tend to be nurturers and they tend to be more passive in, in the way they work with horses. Men tend to have that by golly, I'll get this done type attitude. They're more assertive, more aggressive. Some horses, as you know, may be more sensitive they may not respond to that assertive guy nearly as well as they do that passive leadership. But either way, you you betcha. But either way, the key thing there is leadership. Women also, because of the lack of the ego that women have versus men, not that women don't have egos, but women Mm. don't tend to have as strong an ego sometimes as men do. And and so women are, are more likely to make adjustments whereas men are more likely to try to make the horse make an adjustment. And so to be successful with our horses, we've really got to be able to balance and compromise both of those. 
And so whenever I'm looking, t- talking to women uh, versus the men, my approach is really not that much different. What I read, though, is what's this woman's personality like? What, what, are, what are the reasons she's not having the success with her horse that she really wants to have? And mm-hmm. if it's because they're, they lack assertiveness, then we're going to start working on confidence skills and, and uh, skills that would help that woman develop a certain amount of confidence in herself and then have that assertiveness to portray that confidence to the horse. And then, right. cause we all like leaders to be confident, don't we? Yes. Yes. And then do you have to then go to some men that, that visit your clinic and try and get them to be a little bit more nurturing? Not necessarily. Yeah. Sometimes nurturing is the key, but other times with or men, passive. yeah, more times with men, it's, it's teaching them to be a little bit more patient, you know, set, mm-hmm. you know, think ahead, set the horse up to be successful and then give them a chance to be successful. In other words, don't force something else down them while they're thinking about that. So men tend to want to, uh, to ask something and get an immediate response. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, they want to try to bully it into that. And I don't mean that all men are bullies. It's just that we tend to want to kind of push it and kind of make it happen. So with, with men, the approach sometimes a little bit different when it's kind of set them up to, to wait and be a little bit more patient in some cases. Um, but it, it all really, truly to, to, to quote Tom Dorrance again, sometimes it just depends. It just depends on the personalities, <laughs> doesn't it? That's right. See that it all comes back every time. Yes, sir. Do you have a specialty in your clinics? Do you, do you teach general horsemanship clinics or are you a particular discipline? In all honesty, John, I I think there's nothing beyond the basics. Mm -hmm. I tend to take all of my basic training and lean it a little bit more toward the ranch horse because I grew up as a ranch kid. Uh, Mm -hmm. Horses had to have a purpose. They had to be able to help us get our job done throughout the day. So obviously when ranch horse versatility came around many years later, that was right up my alley. I loved it. I excelled at it. I thought it was great. Uh, It Mm -hmm. gave me an opportunity to showcase my horse's multitude of talents as opposed to just one area. And then at the same time, it also gave me an opportunity to keep my skills diverse instead of focusing on one area. So that's my favorite. But I don't really tend to push any particular direction. What I try to get folks to focus on more so than anything is master the basics. And with that, I have to give credit to, believe it or not, my high school algebra teacher. John, when I was, I, I'd mentioned I, I grew up in a little bitty town called Campbell, Texas. Campbell was so mm-hmm. small that if I would have stayed there, I'd have graduated one of eight in my graduating class. Uh, so <laughs> I, I later transferred to another school, but when I did, I realized, oops, their, their educational standard was higher. In order to graduate the way that I wanted to with the classes that I wanted to, to prepare me for college, I had to have algebra as a freshman. Problem mm-hmm. was I wasn't prepared for algebra in junior high. So when I got ready to go to, to algebra class, I was as lost as a ball in high weeds. Uh-huh. The very first time I was ever asked to go to the board about two weeks into class, our teacher asked me to come to the board. And for those out there that don't know what blackboards are, have to look it up. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's a big iPad, yeah, only it's, it's on a wall. Yeah, <laughs> um, but she asked me to go to the, the board. And, John, I, I didn't have a clue what to do. I'd been studying this book for two weeks, and I had no idea what it was trying to tell me. Uh, everything that she was teaching in class was foreign to me. And now to add insult to injury, she asked me to come to the front of the class and work a problem on the board. And oh I think she noticed my shaking in my boots and she leaned back in her chair and she said, Mr. Van, can you add? And at first I'm thinking, oh my God, she's going to add insult to injury here. She's going to, yeah. she's going to belittle me here in front of my class. 
you know, and make fun of my ignorance. But I said, yes, ma'am, she, I can add. Well, can you subtract? Yes, ma'am, I can subtract. Can you multiply and divide? Yes, ma'am, I can multiply and divide. Well, Van, if you can add, subtract, multiply and divide, then you can do algebra. It's my job to teach you how and when to do those things. From then on, algebra had solutions instead of big giant problems. I began to see all the plus signs and the minus signs and the multiplication signs and the division signs and quit focusing on all the parentheses and the X's and the Y's. And I began to figure out, with her assistance, of course, how to solve problems. Right. When I look at people today and their horsemanship, they focus on the problem. They don't focus on developing the little bitty skills that will help them solve any problem that comes about. Mm. Forward motion, the control of forward motion and the stop of forward motion. You can't get much more fundamental than that. But I'm right. absolutely amazed at how many people can't get their horses to go forward at a walk, trot, or a canter properly. They can't turn them left or right properly. The horse is not responsive. And if something goes wrong, they can't stop it. And I'm thinking, and you want to do a flying lead change? Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so they, they, well, man, I'm having real difficulty with flying lead changes. No, you're having difficulty keeping your horse at a jog trot or so what, what I really want them to do is master the basics. And then you are armed to do any math problem you want to, you want to do. There you go. You yeah. see, so master the basics. So whenever I go somewhere, we oftentimes we'll tell everybody we're going to do an advanced clinic. And most people assume that our advanced clinics are going to work on better stops better turnarounds, rollbacks, flying lead changes, all those really cool things. But unfortunately, guess what we end up working on, John? The basics. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> you betcha. That mastering those sets us up to be successful at everything else that we do. Right. That's a, that's a great analogy with the algebra. And that you have to be able to do the basic adding and subtracting before you can put all those things together. And when it comes to focusing on the problem versus the solution, that's a great life lesson, isn't it? It is. One, one thing that we do in almost every one of our clinics, I'll go, you know, you've seen those big giant orange highway cones. Yes. Well, I'll go get one. I'll, I'll have the clinic already going and everybody's kind of moving around and I'll tell everybody, all right, guys, y'all just keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to step off my horse real quick and go grab this and I'll be right back. And I'll go grab one of those highway cones and I'll just go sit it in the arena somewhere. And inevitably, by the time I walk back to get my horse, I'll look up and everybody's over there smelling of the cone, trotting circles around the cone, kind of, <laughs> kind of posing their horses to the cone. A little while later, I'll go out in the middle of the arena again. I say, all right, everybody, everybody come around me. Let's circle around. I'm going to give you guys the next little exercise we're going to do. Okay. And I'll give them another exercise. But there's a stipulation this time. The stipulation is this. I want you to do all these exercises, and it might be doing nothing more than just trotting in circles, for example. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. You, you can't get close to that cone. No matter what you do, I want you guys to stay at least 20 or 30 feet or so away from that darn cone. Right. Inevitably, guess what we see people doing? They can't stay away. <laughs> They're literally struggling to keep their horses away from that cone. And then later, I'll get everybody back around. So how many of you guys had trouble keeping your horses away from the cone? And almost everyone will raise their hands and say, yeah, we, gosh, my horse is almost like a magnet. They were just going to it. And what I tell them later is really a great moment for them, a, a great realization, is because when we put the cone out there, the human began to focus on the cone. And then what did we do? Mm -hmm. We actually 
told the horses to also focus on the cone. And then when the mm-hmm. cone became the problem and they were told to avoid it, they couldn't help but to be migrated back to it. Why? Because they were thinking about stay away from the cone, stay away from the cone, stay away from the cone. So what was the, what was the real lesson in there? Rather than focusing on what they can do, which is trotting circles, mm-hmm. they focused on what they couldn't do, which is go close to the cone. And what did they get? They got the cone. They got the cone, yeah. So if we tend to, to exercise those skills of focusing on what we want in life, instead of focusing on what we don't want, we'll tend to gravitate toward the, what, that which we want. And even if we do end up from time to time at a place where we don't want to be, we know know how to get away from that place because we'll retrain our brain again to go think about what, what it is that we do want. So that's, that's my message by doing that little cone exercise with everybody is focus on those skills that you want. Focus on the things that you do want and don't let the obstacles in there in your life draw you to them. Don't be part of that drama. Let's stay, let's stay on what you want. Let's stay focused. That's part of that horsemanship and personal growth philosophy there. Absolutely. As we kind of wind this thing up, um, I always like to offer our listeners a little bit of horsemanship advice. Now, we've this has been a whole show full of that, but I do want to touch on some of the things that your website offers, and that is the, the Top Hand program. I thought this was a, a great idea. It uh, From what I could see, it, it not only goes into the basics, but also has more advanced things. And But I really like the affordability of it, too. You bet. Well, John, that was something we really wanted to do was, um, you know, it's, it's something that's actually quite popular. You see a lot of videos out there. Uh, what we've learned mm-hmm. over the years, though, people's attention spans are very, very short. Um, right. and, and, and thanks to like Facebook, YouTube, you know, tend to, tend to, people tend to watch very short video clips. So right. what we did was we started focusing on that. We started focusing on little short, direct to the point video clips that answer folks' questions uh, about what it is that how you do something or why you do something. And we, we started compiling those into a library. And that library, of course, is our top hand club. And so when people pay a, a small minimum fee of $4.95 a month, then they, they, they have access to that, that library. They also have access to me. They can send me questions, concerns, whatever, and I'll answer those directly. The other cool thing is, is that we try to make it affordable enough that they could get repaid, so to speak, by just one purchase off our website. They could go to our website and purchase any, anything on our website, uh, and you're automatically given a, a 10% discount if you're a top hand member. So even if you bought one of my bits, you're going to save more than $4.95 off that first bit purchase, which paid, right. for, which paid for your next month's um, subscription. So again, uh-huh. I just wanted it to be affordable and, and achievable. And quite frankly, I would give it away if we could. But unfortunately, it does take my wife quite a bit of time to, to edit everything down and to put it on the, on the website. So as a result, we do have a small fee, but we, uh, we, we wanted that fee to be very affordable to people and, and very much worth their while to, uh, to, to have part of it. And the topics are great. So if you're a beginner, I mean, I watched one where you were just showing somebody how to, to properly tie a rope halter. And I'm sure that they go into more advanced topics. As You bet. Oh, you know, that's, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, rope halters are so popular, aren't they? It's just amazing yeah. how many people <laughs> out there have them. But I'm also tickled at, and, and sometimes kind of frightened by how many times I see people tie them in uh, improperly. 
And then when you do, you've you've lost the benefit of the rope halter because once right. that, once that knot comes tight, you're not going to untie that sucker. Yeah. So <laughs> you're cutting if, it off. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things that so many people just take for granted. So uh, that's you're right. This that little bitty simple deal. I'm going to show you guys very slowly, very carefully how to tie. Uh, you know, a rope halter on your horse and there's other stuff, you know, how to safely pick up your horse's feet and back feet. I mean, and then we, at the same time, we also go into the flying lead change thing, you know, that, mm-hmm. and I don't know why flying lead changes is so difficult for some people, but I know that it is. And because of it is, we try to break that thing down into several little bitty short videos that says, if you do this one, then you're ready to go to the next video. If you do this right. one, you're ready to go to the next video and then so on and so forth. And then eventually you'll get to that point where you're, you're ready to try those flying lead changes. And if you still don't get it after all that, then I'm going to recommend you go work with a trainer specifically because right. you, you might be having an issue that's mainly just a, a timing issue. And if it is, then sometimes having another set of eyes uh, really helps out. Yeah, there's nothing like going, you know, you can study the videos and read the books and the magazine articles and get, you can get really close, but there's something about going to a trainer who's qualified that can see some of the things that you're doing and have you just make that little adjustment and and the dominoes just fall into place. Absolutely. Yep. Well said, John. Well, this has really been great fun, Van. Uh, I enjoyed uh, talking to you. I, I know I learned a lot and... Gosh, it's just been great having you on the show. Well, thank you so much. And give my regards to your wife. When I listened to one of your podcasts, I heard the two of you just laughing and cutting up together. And it was really, <laughs> it made it fun for me as a listener. So I really appreciate that. So give her my regards and, I and I tell her I really appreciate her bubbly attitude. It's just a great attitude. Well, thanks. And if we can get to Texas, well, we'd love, I'd love to ride with you sometime. Oh, absolutely. You're always welcome here at the ranch. Thank you, John. It was great having Van Hargis on the show this week. He has a bunch of great tools to help you with your horsemanship. I hope you'll check them all out. Find all the links at woepodcast.com. Subscribe to the Woe Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You'll never miss an episode. And take us along when you ride or have chores to do. Woe Podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, we're everywhere. And do you need more? You can join our mailing list at woepodcast.com. Every Friday, I'll send you a quick tip, something you can do to build a better relationship with your horse with just a few minutes practice. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please keep sharing our little show about horses and horsemanship with your friends. And until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.